Welcome back everybody to the Introduction to ST3 podcasts. Today I'm joined by one of my consultant colleagues from Bolton, Catherine Williams, and we're going to be talking to you about team leading. Hello everybody. Hi Catherine, thanks for joining us. We were going to start this off by talking about teams that we've been involved with in the past. Yes, absolutely Kirsten. I think um, by ST3, Uh, Everybody has been a member of lots of different teams in the healthcare setting and we probably all recognise that some teams and some situations work much better than others and it's probably worth just spending a couple of minutes thinking about what team leadership behaviours influence that and what we can seek to emulate as we become team leaders ourselves. Yes, I think some of the most memorable teams that any of us have been involved with are teams with really poor team leaders. And you can see that having somebody who's got poor team leadership skills can really impact then on how the team works afterwards. In fact, I think some of the most chaotic and difficult resuscitation scenarios I've been in have been those where a single team leader has not actually been clearly identified. Yes, and then sometimes, even when you've got a clearly defined team leader, if that team leader is almost reluctant to actually make decisions about what the team should do, then that again can impact on how the team works. Absolutely. Um, Team leadership is a really underrated and skill that's often not taught particularly well. And we develop our team leadership skills from observing people and um, copying behaviour, essentially. Okay, so we've talked about some things that we know make team leaders not particularly effective. So if one of them isn't clearly identified or if they struggle to either make decisions or communicate decisions that they have made to the rest of the team. What about teams that we've been involved in that have been really well I can clearly remember some scenarios when I was fairly junior where everything felt very panicky and chaotic and everyone in the room was quite stressed and then a more senior member of the team swept into the room bringing with them just an air of calm and their their presence and the way they carried themselves just dropped the temperature in the room and dropped the stress levels for everybody. Yes it's It's interesting, actually. Lots of the time people think that to be a team leader, you've got to be loud and almost bombastic in order to gain people's attention. And yet the best run teams that I can remember being involved with have had team leaders who are actually quite quiet and very calm and really just take command of the situation. And it brings that stress level down for everybody and that helps your team then work better. Absolutely. Some of the best run resources that I've been involved with, you could hear a pin drop in the room because communication is so organised and clear and there's no need to shout and there's no need to assert yourself in that way. And that's the team leaders in those scenarios become the focal point for all communication. Uh, and then they, they are able to direct things in a calm and organised manner. Great. Okay. So we talked about what makes an effective team leader and what makes a team leader ineffective. How do we decide who should be the team leader in the first place? I think it's important to recognise that the team leader is a coordinating role. The team leader doesn't have to be the person with all the answers. 
It doesn't have to be the person who knows everything. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the most senior person in the room. Yes, I think that's really true. And we see it sometimes with cardiac arrest management. So there are quite a few skilled jobs that need to happen whilst you're managing a cardiac arrest. And you need to look at the skill mix within your team and work out who should do which role. So as an ST3, you've recently done your anaesthetic placements. You may very well be well served to be up at the head end of the patient looking after their airway when they come in, especially if the rest of your team is comprised of junior doctors who don't have that skill set. You could very easily take any of your foundation doctors or any of your senior nurses who are ALS trained or ALS instructors and have them lead the team whilst you carry out a complex task. Absolutely. I think it's also important to recognise that if you are doing a complex task, no matter how good you are, you can't be an effective team leader because you inevitably become task focused and you lose situational awareness. Yes, it's it's one of those things when we talk about confidence in our own abilities that can really get in the way people can be so confident in their ability either to do a skill or to team lead that they think that they can do both at the same time and actually if you've got anything that requires you to think about what you're doing at the same time then you can't you can't team lead you can't multitask in that sort of way in fact I would go so far as to say that none of us really multitask at any particular point in time we just think that we do and actually we end up doing both tasks not quite as well as we should do but not only is it too much of a cognitive load to team lead and do a complex task at the same time but you you lose that helicopter view you end up being hands-on and in with that close sphere of the patient absolutely it can be really really difficult you just somehow you you can't watch a monitor and Um, look down a laryngoscope at the same time. So on some occasions, it may be necessary to hand the team leadership over to another member of the team temporarily if you are the only person who can perform a specific task. Yes, so if you start team leading a scenario like a trauma, that doesn't mean that you have to team lead the whole thing. If you need to step in and do something else, you can switch out of your role and put somebody else in a team leadership position just while you complete that complex task. I think it's important that that's done explicitly and clearly so that everybody in the room Uh, is aware of what you're doing. Yes, and I think that's really important, especially if you're handing team leadership over to a more junior member of staff, because people automatically assume that the most senior person is going to be the team leader, and we know that that's not always the case. But naming them as the team leader almost gives them the authority to actually carry out that role. Absolutely. I think that's very important as a senior supervising a junior as well, that we explicitly name them as team leader so that the team doesn't automatically defer to the most senior person. On that sort of theme about identifying somebody else as the team leader, it really comes to role allocations within these more complex resuscitation scenarios where you have a team leader anyway. So we need to make sure that everybody has roles allocated and that's one of the jobs that you would do as team leader. Absolutely. It's incredibly important to know who you've got in your team. Understanding who you've got and what their skill set is, 
is really important. And I think making sure that the rest of the team also know that information is important too. So role allocation should really be done with the whole team present and with everybody listening in so that everyone understands what everybody else's role is. It stops people being helpful in trying to take over other people's jobs and it also stops any ambiguity about who everybody is. When they all come down for a trauma and everyone's wearing scrubs, often it's difficult to know which team people belong to. Very true. On that note, it's it's fairly straightforward if you have a pre-alert that you're going to receive a patient. It's relatively straightforward to get your team together, decide how you're going to run it and allocate roles. It's a little bit more tricky in scenarios where the team arrives in dribs and drabs. So sometimes this happens with our trauma patients. So we're asking different members from different teams across the hospital to all come together. And yes, sometimes we'll get a half an hour pre-alert, which gives everybody plenty of time to come down. But sometimes we get a matter of minutes to try to assemble a team. Sometimes this means we have to change people's roles as the team expands. So you might start off with a core group of people with roles allocated to them. And then if somebody more suitable to do that particular role or that task appears, you might swap them into that role. The important part of that is how you do it rather than who you're asking to do which bits. I think it's helpful if your team is arriving in dribs and drabs to get an introduction from them as they arrive in the room and that effectively establishes you as team leader. It makes sure you know who they are and it gives you an idea of their skill set and then you can strategically allocate them. Yes, we use stickers to help with this as well. So we've got roles printed on stickers. So we've got team leader, ED doc, surgical doc, anaesthetic doc, anaesthetic assistant as quite large, obvious, colour-coded stickers. So when you come down for a trauma call, you'll have a sticker on so that the team leader is easily identifiable and everybody knows who everybody else is. So as they come in and they sign in the book and they put their sticker on, we know what their role is, even if I don't know what their name is at that time. Yeah, and lots of places have different ways of doing that with um, tabards or stickers or um, different colour-coded lanyards. Or even simply writing your name across your pinny. If you've not got any of these adjuncts that make it more obvious, then as you're putting your pinny on to see the patient, you can write your name and who you are on that, and that makes it obvious to everyone. This might be a good point to talk about how many people are in our team and whether it's okay to send people away. Oh, definitely. I distinctly remember one trauma that I was involved with when probably over 30 people came down to a trauma because it was going to be exciting or chaotic, depending which way you were going to look at it. And it felt, as somebody involved in the kind of core part of the trauma team, it felt very much like we were in a fishbowl being watched by all these people who were wondering what was going on. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And I think as a team, we would have benefited greatly from all those spectators being sent away. Some of the busiest and most chaotic um, resources I can think of is a paediatric trauma scenario where you have, in addition to the ED team, the anaesthetic team, the surgical and orthopaedic teams and the paediatric teams. And of course, each of those come with a group of hangers on. So you might really you want the surgical reg for example 
Um, but you may well get several medical students, a couple of junior doctors, um, and sometimes um, nursing staff from various units coming down. Because these cases are relatively infrequent, they're fairly interesting, and everybody wants to help, and that's lovely, but it can create its own problems. In addition to that, thinking about recent times, we've changed the structure of our trauma teams because of COVID. And really, it makes you wonder why we've not done this previously. So we now limit the number of people who can come down. So we have a maximum of two people from each specialty team. I think that's an excellent rule. So it could be a registrar and a junior. It could be a consultant and a junior. It could be a consultant and a medical student. It doesn't really matter who, as long as out of those two people, one is a senior decision maker and then one is somebody who is there, who is either in training or has some learning needs that they're bringing down for for that element. So we're not removing any learning opportunities from these, but we are restricting the number of people that are exposed to potential COVID patients. But not only does it reduce their risk of exposure, when team leading, it makes it much easier because you don't have to manage crowd control at the same time. Yes, crowd control is a big issue. I think one thing that I've found that can help is asking people who aren't actively doing something to the patient at that time to step away. Yes. Or asking, thanking people, asking them to to leave or to wait outside with the message that thank you very much for coming. I don't think we need you at the moment. We'll call you back if we do. Yes, that's something that we use quite a lot. And I have been known too with a piece of tape make my own line on the floor where our previous line of recess has been worn off after too much use to try to separate people from that kind of core part of the group. People's natural instinct in resus is to crowd in and try and touch the patient or see the patient um, almost as, as an attempt to help, but when it gets to the point that there are so many people crowded around the trolley that you can't actually see the patient anymore, that's probably a clue that you need to send some people away. Yes, and also be wary of those who are just going to stand back and observe, because what happens is they tend to provide a running commentary of what's going on to the people beside them, and noise levels within complex resuscitation scenarios can escalate quite quickly, and it's much easier to team lead if you are in a quiet environment than if you're somewhere that's very, very noisy. The other thing that can happen very easily when you have big speciality groups coming down is you can end up with silo formation. That silo, who are used to working together, can form their own uh, communication hub, which excludes the rest of the department. I particularly remember one paediatric trauma where the anaesthetic team had formed a silo at the head end of the patient whilst the team leader was having a different conversation with the surgical team. And as the team leader concluded that conversation, they realised that the child had had an RSI and been intubated. Oh, crikey. Yes, it was, it was quite special, especially as the plan wasn't to intubate the patient. Oh, no. There we go. I think if, if anything is going to highlight the importance of good team communication, it's going to be that point, Catherine. So we want to avoid silo formation. And it's important to that as the team leader, you keep the, the lines of communication Um, with the other team members open and we often refer to closed loop communication 
Um, but a back and forth dialogue is really important. Yes, and I think all of us recognise this is even more important these days with the use of PPE because hearing and miscommunications are a bigger issue now than they have been even in the past. So closed loop communication is more important now than ever. But I think what you're alluding to there as well is rather than just team leading, it's how we encourage better team working. So as a team leader, we should encourage discussion with the rest of the team. We want their feedback and their thoughts and their ideas to enable us to lead better. But there's got to be some back and forth to make that work as well as it can do. The team leader doesn't have to be the expert. You may not know what the management of a a metabolic emergency in a toddler is, but that doesn't mean that you can't be the team leader in a particular resuscitation scenario. But you need to use the expertise of your team and you need to synthesise the information you get from your expert, uh, your expert team member, um, with the other information you have regarding different priorities from different specialty groups. Um, to make a decision and prioritise care. So when we're thinking about prioritisation, sometimes it's not clear-cut in terms of what should happen next. If you take a trauma example of a patient who has got a lower limb fracture, they've not got a pulse in that limb, but they are in a lot of pain and very agitated and not very easily compliant and in addition to that you also think that they have got a chest injury but because they're a bit agitated it's hard to get the sats and you're not particularly sure what's going on. There are a few things that need doing at the same time so that leg doesn't have a pulse in it so that needs reducing as quickly as possible in order to reperfuse the limb. But at the same time, if they're hypoxic and that's making them agitated because of their because of their chest injury, then actually either putting a chest drain in or intubating and ventilating this patient is going to be really important. And you probably don't want to give them a little bit of sedation so that you can pull the leg because if they're truly hypoxic, that's the time that you're taking to sort the leg out is detrimental to their brain from hypoxic brain injuries. So what you might say is, I appreciate this leg needs reducing as quickly as possible. However, I'm concerned that this patient's agitation might not just be pain related, it could also be caused by hypoxia. They also need an awful lot of pain relief to sort the leg out. So I think we should intubate this patient first, and then as soon as they're asleep, we can sort this leg out, and that will solve all of our problems in the most efficient way for the patient. And expressing that very clearly and explicitly, that that's the order you're going to do things in, um, brings your whole team with you in in the direction of travel you want to go. Marvellous. Talking about team communication... One thing we need to remember is that when things get busy, we all have a tendency to make statements like, can somebody put in a cannula? We need to splint that ankle. What we refer to as an arrow in the air, it's not directed at a particular individual. And whilst somebody may pick that up and uh, do what needs to be done, there's a reasonable chance, especially if people are already task-focused or cognitively overloaded, 
that that will not happen. Yes, it's particularly important for things like antibiotics that are obviously important to get in early. The other problem can also be that all of your available staff can run off to try to do that task. So suddenly your team can be rapidly depleted, whereas the task only required one or two people to actually sort it out. So we've talked quite a bit about the role of a team leader and how a team leader manages their team within a resuscitation setting in terms of what tasks they need to do. But we wanted to talk a little bit about how we also look after our teams, didn't we? So during a resuscitation scenario, especially those that are more difficult or less familiar, um, it's quite common for certain members of the team to have um, an emotional, visceral response to it, which might vary in how it manifests itself and how it affects their behaviour. The, the concept of fight or flight will be familiar to everybody. So the, the fight response, uh, people's adrenaline is up, they become um, very uh, animated, they may become bossy, they may try and take over the leadership role, or they may um, feel that they are advocating for the patient by getting uh, very wound up and potentially causing conflict. That's something I think we can probably recognise. There are people who have the fight response. There are people who go the other way and have the flight response in that they may become actually avoidant of the whole situation. And there are people who freeze. And that's not uncommon to look around the resus room and find that somebody is frozen. Now, that may, might take the, the form of them being inappropriately task-focused, perhaps on getting a second or third cannula, because that's a, a defined task that they feel they can cope with. Um, or they might just be standing on the sidelines, frozen, looking petrified. It's important to spot those people because they need your help. One suggestion would be to gently retask them. So perhaps with something very, uh, with very low cognitive loads. So for example, could you label these bloods and take them to the pod? Something that doesn't require a huge amount of cognitive work from them, but that is useful. And sometimes having done that, you kind of break through the freeze response and they, they can be then retasked as part of the team. And actually, sometimes removing them from the environment. So if you're asking them to go and pod the bloods, they've actually got to move from the side of the resuscitation into another area of the department. That in itself can be enough to reset somebody because it gives them a few seconds to kind of come back to normality before they then re-enter the resuscitation. So physically moving from one environment to another can assist with that. Yes, absolutely. So that's one way of looking after our teams actually during the resuscitation. But we also need to remember to look after our teams after the resuscitation. Um, it's not something I want us to particularly cover on this podcast because we've got another podcast which is looking at hot and cold debriefing. Um, but it's worth just mentioning that after these complex resuscitation scenarios, this is the kind of time where you should be thinking about having a hot debrief. Yes, that can be very useful. Okay, so I think the last thing we've probably got to talk about 
is what we do after this resuscitation episode has ended and we've done all of the kind of exciting interventions with the patient and they've been referred somewhere we need to make sure that we provide a really good handover to kind of complete the care that we have given to that patient you often find that your team sort of slowly evaporates and people sort of drift away in their ones and twos and there isn't a clear end point i think it's quite important to formally hand over team leadership to whoever is going to provide definitive care or look after that patient afterwards because otherwise that gray zone where it's not clear who's in charge of that patient can be where uh, mistakes happen Yes, and there are some systems put in place to make this a little bit more secure or to make sure that it doesn't get missed. So in the trauma booklets that are used across the region, there is a page where you write any outstanding tasks and who particularly is the team that's going to be taking over their care. Um, I remember when I worked in Bolton that you used to do electronic handovers as well. So you would actually write a little S-bar on the computer with all the pertinent information in when you referred a patient. And actually, when we're handing over these complex patients, we need to make sure that as well as giving a verbal handover, it needs to have a really well-documented and very clear handover of care within the notes as well. I think a summary at the end is quite important perhaps in an a to e format summarizing what the initial problems are and what actions have been taken and then you need to be explicit about what has not yet been done and this is quite common with unstable perhaps major trauma type patients where a full secondary survey has not yet been completed Um, so it may be I, i think he may also have a finger injury but I haven't fully assessed that, which isn't something that you have failed to do. It's just you haven't yet got up to that point. And it's very important that you're clear how far through the process you've got and what still is outstanding. And I'd also say that as a team leader, you might not be the one completing all of the documentation. You might have a scribe who's doing the documentation during the resuscitation, or it might have been a a role that you've allocated to one of your juniors. And that's absolutely fine. But as team leader, it is your responsibility to ensure that those notes are adequate. And so even if you're tasking somebody else to do them, as a team leader, you should be checking that all the pertinent information is there before the patient moves on. So I think we've probably covered everything that we wanted to talk about today, Catherine. Yes, I think so. It's probably worth just bringing it together with a bit of a summary at this point. I think we've talked about the role of the team leader. The first thing about the role of the team leader is we need to be clear who they are, but we need to recognise that the team leader doesn't need to be the most expert, it doesn't need to be the most senior, and the team leader doesn't necessarily need to have all the answers. They need to know their team and make sure that the team know that you're the team leader. They need to use their team effectively, delegating tasks, um, maintaining two-way communication, verbalising their thought process so that everybody is on the same page and prioritising the things that are are most urgent um, and making it clear to your team 
how you're going to organize things, keeping control of your team, avoiding silo formation, sending people away if you need to, and ensuring that they complete documentation appropriately before they leave, looking after your team, and then drawing it to a close with an effective summary and handover. Great. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you for having me, Kirsten. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Um, so that rounds up this podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe and goodbye. Bye. Bye.